You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is an attorney who represents startups, nonprofits, arts organizations, and people who work in the creative industries. As an arts entrepreneur, Brian is the founder and CEO of Performing Arts Live, a Pennsylvania nonprofit corporation dedicated to creating and supporting live performance opportunities for jazz and electronic artists. Its flagship program is the Allentown Jazz Fest. Brian is a TEDx speaker, a Grammy voter, and jazz musician. Creative Confidential begins now. This is episode six of Creative Confidential, and today we're very fortunate to be joined uh, by Diane Wittry. Uh, Diane is a frequent guest conductor of professional orchestras across the United States and in Europe. She has guest conducted the Los Angeles Philharmonic, the Milwaukee Symphony, the San Diego Symphony, and the Houston Symphony. Diane is currently the music director and conductor of the Allentown Symphony Orchestra in Pennsylvania. As a teacher, Diane is a frequent guest lecturer at Juilliard and the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, as well as other universities and colleges. Diane's first book, entitled Beyond the Baton, What Every Conductor Needs to Know, which was published in Oxford University Press in 2007, has become a standard required text for the orchestral conducting programs nationally. Diane just published a follow-up work, Baton Basics, Communicating Music Through Gestures, also with the Oxford University Press in 2014. Both are available through all online retailers. Diane, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we've known each other a, a long time now, so uh, it's it's interesting to be talking in this uh, kind of format. Um, and, you know, part of the podcast is to help young artists who may not know how to navigate through the, the freelance world, which I think, you know, all musicians are basically freelancers, whether they realize it or not. They're kind of their own little, you know, their own solo business. And, um, you know, another part of it is is from, you know, from a standpoint of being in a nonprofit organization as the artistic director, you know, how do you how do you navigate that world? Because I, I know many people that are successful in the for profit world that get involved in on a nonprofit board, whether it's the art museum or, uh, you know, whatever the uh, institution is in their in their town. And, you know, during their first term on the board, it's a little bit perplexing because it's it, the nonprofit world is its own animal. It's not anything like uh, the business world, although it does have, you know, aspects of that. Um, so you've got, you know, you have both perspectives. You've, you know, you, you've lived the life. You're doing things on your own terms, I think it seems, right? Yes. Right. <laughs> I'm very, I count my blessings every day. Traveling the world and, and you know, publishing books and, and – uh um, so, you know, maybe, you know, let's be predictable and start at the beginning. You know, what was it, you know, in your, uh, you know, when you were starting out, what, what was that moment where the switch got turned on for you, where you knew this is what you wanted to be? Right. Well, you know, I started as a violinist, and so I attended the Thornton School of Music in California as a violinist. But about halfway through my degree, I realized that, I wanted to do more than just play violin in an, in an orchestra for the rest of my life. And I knew I didn't want to teach full-time, but I was sort of searching for 
what I wanted to do. And when I discovered conducting, it was a required course to graduate. I realized that was really the switch that went on, that it combined everything I loved to do about music making, working with people, creating something um, exciting, being right in the middle of the music, and, and just not being in that one little piece of the music. And so from that point on, everything I did was focused on how can I become a better conductor. I took every single conducting course I could take, uh, eventually got into the master's program. It is a very, very competitive field, but it was something that I think my recommendation for people out there is you have to find your passion. You know, first and foremost, find your passion and then learn everything you can and know that you're going to be in order to be successful, you're going to have to keep learning and growing and challenging yourself the rest of your life. There is no point where you reach a certain plateau and you go, okay, I've arrived. It's always you know, recreating yourself in the arts. Well, and that's a, a really important point that we, um, you know, we need to revisit with, with, with all of our guests. I think in, in, our, in our other episodes that we've done, one thing that has come through is um, – in a way, it's it is a life of sacrifice. In that, you have to, you know, it's it's harder working as a musician and earning a living than it's it's not a nine to five thing. It's it's twenty four seven three sixty five almost in some cases where, um, you know, most people might be off for New Year's Eve or Christmas, but you know, sometimes a gig comes up and you wouldn't ordinarily work on New Year's Eve, but hey, you know, need the money or whatever the situation is. And it's the amount of discipline that's required is is something I wanted to ask you about in order to get through an undergrad program as an instrumental major. You know, the the amount of hours that, you know, you're in the rehearsal room you're, or you're in the practice room by yourself or in with rehearsal with ensembles. I mean, tell us a little bit about. Well, it definitely comes down to what you're willing to put into it. Anyone can really be a great musician if you're willing to put in the time. And I see so many people with great talent who aren't willing to put in the time. And people wonder, well, why did they not make it in the field? And and so talent is great and nice if you have it, but really I would take, you know, the discipline of the hard work any day because any of the of the arts requires a great amount of time and often this is time where you have to set your own restrictions. It's not where someone is telling you at an office to do this or where you have to show up at a certain time. You know, I've always been somewhat self-employed, and so I have a schedule where, you know, I have to be working at my desk by 8 o'clock in the morning. I have certain scores that I'm working on that might be a year out, but I, I know that I have to get all of these things done or I won't be able to have the music learned in time for the performances. And I'm juggling usually 20, 30 different performances a year at least, and I work for multiple organizations. You know, so, so you do have to be organized, self-disciplined, and really committed now, do, uh, so do you, of those 20 or 30 performances, are they all, um, are there any like chamber groups or smaller groups in, in that or are they all symphony orchestra sized ensembles? Yeah, I usually do full orchestra works, you know, so occasionally I might do a string work or something, but usually I'm dealing with, with full orchestras. So I work with the Allentown Symphony, I work with the Ridgewood Symphony, I work with the Sar Sarajevo Philharmonic in Bosnia. I teach usually at least two conducting workshops, uh, one in Bulgaria and one in Connecticut. 
You know, so all of those have different repertoire that has to be learned and details that have to be conveyed to the staff so that those concerts are successful. And I'm going to do something that might make you cringe, but for for people that are listening that aren't, you know, kind of tuned into the, the classical world, um, if you're building a house, you know, there's a certain timeline of things that need to happen. You have to get approvals from, you know, the local government, then you have to order materials or you have to design what you're going to do. You have to order materials and everything has to arrive in time to break ground when you need to. And But with with what you do, it's not that different in that you're still working with physical scores or is everything – are you working in Finale or one of the software packages at this point? No, most of the music comes in physical scores. Now, I also compose. If I'm composing, I'm going to be working with you know a computerized program. Mm-hmm. But but you're exactly right. We are working usually a year and a half in advance. So I'm already finishing programming for two orchestras for concerts that are a year and a half from now. At the same time, I'm dealing with the concert that I'm doing the, you know next week, and at the same time, I'm dealing with concerts that I'm doing the next six months. So you, so in that in that group, you're already thinking about somebody's 2017, 2018 season. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, yeah. today. We're doing 16, 17, and then s- sketching out 17, 18. Okay. So when you're when you're working with the physical score, this is still to some extent, um, you know, there used to be an industry of music copyists who would, would take a score that, that contains all the parts. It's a huge sheet of paper and w- would actually physically write out the violin one part in, in hand, in, in, you know, pen and ink. Um, not many music copyists around – so much anymore, I would I would think. Yeah, now it, that's all computerized. Yeah, so I don't have to worry about that. We the orchestras I work with have professional librarians that handle all the music. So for me, it's more of who's getting which part. Do we have extra qualifications? You know, I'm doing a concert in the spring where the trumpet player has to also play cornet. Does the trumpet player own a cornet? You know, the the trombone player has to double on euphonium. You know, is that a possible double? So anticipating different types of things that go with the music in addition to learning the music, figuring out how I'm going to spend my rehearsal time. I do detailed to the minute rehearsal schedules for every single rehearsal. And sometimes those are done six months in advance. And then you have to circle back around if you want to make some adjustments on. So, you know, besides the music, there's a lot of technical things that also go into the job. Yeah, the, the number of variables that you just rattled off is is, is staggering. Um, now, as so with another – let's just take Allentown as an example. Um, all of those personnel decisions are yours. Well, they are, or, or, or to the extent that are, you but, know you need to augment with someone who can double on euphonium, or exactly. Or what have you. But but most of the orchestras have what we call a personnel manager. So the personnel manager handles all the contracts. So my job is to make sure they know who to hire, so that we have the right people in the room for right. the pieces. So in picking the pieces, all this is notated of. You know whether we need a you know flute player that also plays piccolo, or whether we need a separate piccolo player. There's millions of details that have to be dealt with, and then some concerts, particularly in the spring here in Allentown, we've got some great concerts. I'm doing Petrushka with dancers, so then we have to coordinate the dancers and make sure that they've got what they need, and then we also are using lighting, so then that has to all be coordinated and worked out. Well, and that's and I think that wasn't in in our initial thing we were talking about, but that's a great point in that. Not just in Allentown, but but everywhere in in the classical world, in, in the U.S., I guess, at least, 
um, the the tendency is that in order to stay relevant, performing arts organizations have to attract a a wider audience than what has historically been a, your core audience of of you know fifty four plus in terms of of age. So to and and as a result of trying to get those Generation Xers into the audience, we you you've started to incorporate other elements, whether it's dance, whether it's kind of semi-staged versions of, of vocal pieces. Uh, Porgy and Bess, I think, a couple of seasons ago, right? And we're doing Puccini, uh, an all Puccini program at Valentine's Day this year, which will be semi-staged with um, video sets behind the orchestra. But you know, this is even though we think of this as being a relatively new trend, we have to realize that. You know, adding dancers to Petrushka, actually, the piece was originally written as a ballet. And so what I'm doing, actually, is going back to what it was, but at the same time recreating it a little bit differently for our modern-day audiences. Why do you think – so if if approaching it in this way is actually going back to the origins, why do you think – and there's probably no answer to this, but, you know, why do you think that – did that element of dance ever come out of those – Productions by and large, or yeah, what happened particularly with a lot of Stravinsky works is they were written around the turn of, of the century, and they were written for ballet. You know, Rite of Spring was a ballet, Petrushka was a ballet, but it was such amazing music that immediately the orchestras took it into the concert hall, and then because it's a lot less expensive to produce it just as a concert as opposed to a, a ballet spectacle, mm-hmm. then it became where we thought of it only as a concert work, but. If you really think and you go back, it was originally a ballet. And, and so being able – one of the great things is here in Allentown, we own the concert hall. So that allows me more affordably to be able to add these extra components to a concert. Well, because otherwise, if if not, if, if the ensemble didn't own the building, which is often the case elsewhere right. – um, your rehearsal costs go through the roof. Exactly. I would exactly. Think, right? And and you're and having technical people involved and, and having to hire a lighting person, having to have a you know all the different things. I have a team that I work with regularly here. So we'll, we'll come back to uh, to Allentown uh, Symphony season uh, in a little bit, but uh, I, I know one of the things that you've been very active with is um, education in terms of. Uh, of of other conductors of of undergrad and grad students that are coming up, uh, and uh, I know that uh, your work beyond the baton has has uh, really had legs to it in in you know in this uh, in, in this world of of conducting students. Um, you know what was the inspiration? Why did you? What was the inspiration for writing the book, and how did that evolve? Well, you know the inspiration for writing beyond the baton was. When I got out of school, I was I felt I was really well trained as a conductor. I I knew my music, I knew rehearsal technique. But when I got my first professional orchestra job, I suddenly realized I knew very little about being an artistic leader in a nonprofit situation. I knew very little about how boards functions, I knew very little about how unions, musicians unions function. And I struggled and learned and I read a lot of management books of working with people and I suddenly realized that the industry needed a book for conductors that would really help them to become better artistic leaders and give them the background of how to navigate 
their first job. And so I took all that I had learned, you know, sometimes by doing things wrong the first time. And then I took, you know, I talked to a lot of colleagues and friends and I wrote the book that I wish someone would have given me when I got Mm. my first orchestra so that I could hopefully do everything right. And so the book really has taken off and it it has become a standard for the industry. Virtually every conductor in the United States that's, that's a orchestral conductor owns this book. And I remember I was doing some work in uh, Bosnia and Sarajevo and I walked in the door and my book was literally sitting on the table and they didn't, they had bought the book before they knew I was coming. That's got to be a good feeling. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty amazing. But I feel very fortunate that the book has had such a positive impact and that it's really helping people and answering questions of how you navigate being a professional conductor. Do you think now, because of all of the other elements to the book in terms of um, dealing with the board members, dealing with you know employment issues with the musicians' unions and all that kind of thing, is this something you'd recommend for you know people that are on nonprofit boards or for executive director, CEO types that that are out there? I mean, it seems like it has a, a wider footprint than just. I mean, it's a highly specialized audience that you're you were describing because, you know, how many orchestras are there in the United States? Less than four hundred. Yeah, there are four hundred. I think that are more professional paid orchestras, and maybe up to nine hundred if you count community orchestras, youth mm-hmm. orchestras, college orchestras. Yet the book is actually also uh, very valuable for executive directors and board presidents because it defines the ever changing role of the music director. And, you know, in the old days, the music director was the great maestro and they walked in for rehearsals and walked out and wasn't seen in between. And as the years have gone on, um, people are looking for more artistic leadership and more involvement from their conductors. But the lines were a little bit blurry. And so conductors didn't know where their lines start started and stopped. And neither did executive directors or board presidents. So this has actually defined the role more clearly and has become the model nationally. Well, I was and I was fishing for a joke about on Seinfeld when when the maestro insisted that people just on the street or you know referred to uh, him as maestro, but uh, <laughs> but I fumbled it, so forget it. Hey, maestro! Hi, Bob. <coughs> I'm sorry, maestro. But that's okay. We all we have a joke in the in the music industry where if the orchestra members are calling you maestro is or maestro, it's probably that they don't remember your name. <laughs> That could that is entirely possible. Well, I mean, there's no doubt you've got a lot of um, you have a lot of different constituencies that it's political, not in the you know Republican or Democrat sense, but it it is a very political position in terms of you've got different groups of people that all have very different agendas, right? And you know, walk you know threading the needle with all of those people is not uh, an easy task. Well, and the goal was to help conductors understand that there are so many different levels of things that need to be considered in their programming, in their educational outreach, so that they take those things into consideration. And so I actually teach a yearly course, and I think about 150, 200 conductors have gone through my course nationally. And the course is designed to give them exercises to practice um, programming for different types of ensembles, different types of concerts, to understand better how to work with a board, um, and also how to even get the job. You know, we, we actually do mock interviews, and we talk about what are people looking for in a music director, because so often in school, none of these things are talked about. Well, and I would I would think that if the 
um, looking at the instrument auditions when you announce a vacancy and you're you're buried with applicants that are all pretty close to making the grade and you've got to really split a hair about, well, this one, you know, is going to get the call. Um, I would imagine it's even more so for when, when artistic director positions come open because they don't happen very often. Right. People that have the gig tend to hang on to it right. for quite a, a while. So there's not a lot of vacancies. Uh, how many, you know, for, could you tell us a little bit, you know, more about that? If, yeah, if, so so there are many different levels and types of conducting. And actually in the book, I, I talk about, you know, whether you want to, you know, most people start out as an assistant conductor, but you can be an assistant conductor of a community orchestra, a regional orchestra, a fully professional orchestra, a orchestra that has maybe a core but doesn't have everybody paid all the time. You know, there, there are just many different types of orchestras. So first you have to decide, you know, where do you want to be in the industry and what type of people and skill set do you want to work with? And also, what is a good match for your background and skill set? If you're currently an assistant conductor of a community orchestra, probably you're not going to get a job as the conductor of a $3 million orchestra as your next job. There's going to be a stair step along the way. But within the industry, maybe 20 jobs will open up in a year. I mean, these are these are very isolated. And of that, some will be jobs that maybe are with community orchestras or college mm. orchestras, and some will be jobs with larger orchestras. And so it is quite competitive. So if you – if it, you know, and I can only imagine um, – well, I guess that's why it makes it so interesting that there has been sort of a youth movement with, with Dudamel at the LA Phil and, and certainly in Philadelphia um, – where you have people in their 30s taking over these organizations where there must have been, you know, it, for the Philadelphia Orchestra vacancy, how many people do you think they – Well, know, the major they, orchestras, you know, it's it's don't call us, we'll call you. Right, so right. There's, certain, there's certain levels of orchestra that will post an audition nationally. Mm -hmm. And it's not even an audition. It's, it's a job application of which they will then narrow it down to five finalists that will each be invited to come and guest conduct. And they'll be paid as a guest conductor. And mm -hmm. then depending on how they you know, work with the orchestra, their relationship with the community, you know, when you're in that process, you know, there's a lot of different – it's not like you go for a one-hour or two-hour interview. It's literally a week of – no, There's no three-martini lunch uh, yeah. uh, kind of thing. <laughs> it's quite extensive. And, and you know, then <clears throat> they have to decide what are they looking for. It's not only your skill set. It's what image do they would like you know, for the orchestra to be presented by. So you're dealing with a lot of different um, desires and wishes on the side of, of the board as they decide what they want their leadership to look like. And so sometimes if they've had a young person, they might then flip to an older person. Um, they'll go for different personalities. You know, they want to – often orchestras will want to change things up a little bit. But ultimately, I think they're looking for who is going to make that orchestra better who has a vision that's that's going to be able to help grow the audience, help grow the funding base. But ultimately, it all comes down to the music because that's why we're all here. We're here to bring music to people. Well, and, and do you – and that's something we haven't talked about actually was the, the role that you play in – because you are the face of the organization as, you know, as the artistic director, the, the amount of energy that you – out of your, your – 
day that gets spent on fundraising. You know, what maybe tell us a little bit about Well, yeah, because uh, people when when you're raising dollars, they would much rather meet if possible with the music director and I think the music director is the best person to sort of convey the artistic vision of the organization. So here in Allentown, Nancy Keeler, who's our development director, and I work very closely. We recently started the uh, musician chair sponsorship program, which I'm very thrilled with, where we have actually individuals in the community that are sponsoring different musicians' chairs. And you know, this is a renewable gift where we hope once they sign on, they're going to support that musician and help underwrite that position for hopefully the rest of their life and maybe even endow the chair. To me, building a donor base is about building long-term relationships where we have the ability to make people's dreams come true. So if you have a dream connected with music and you want to support that dream, we are the people that can make that happen. So you're it's and I would imagine in in many ways you're you're the closer in 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 that process where you know, your development director, we're going to have a lot of nonprofit people listening to this, hopefully so. Uh, but, you know, where the development director kind of opens the door, so to speak, and as things evolve, you know, we better bring Diane in to let's, you know, get this over the uh, the finish line. And um, but do you do you find that that how do you balance having that responsibility versus how do you do it all is really the question. Well, and, and you, have to, you have to realize that where I take the lead is in the music because the music is my core job. All the other things is I'm, I'm there to help. I'm there to you know, bring in suggestions. But, but like Allentown Symphony, because we're a fully professional organization, we have people in each of those roles that that's their job. And so I try to be available just as much as possible to help out. Now, with my orchestra in New Jersey, I do a little bit more of that because it's a smaller organization, uh, smaller staff. And so, you know, often they'll come to me and, and we'll talk about, you know, slanting a grant. How can we take a project we're already doing and make it work within a grant guideline? How mm. can we create a, a really interesting artistic project to apply for an NEA grant? Those types of things are are, are really fun to try to take – Take some of your artistic goals and make them work on multiple levels. Well, do we? Uh, we we should mention that. Uh, and and for those of you uh, who are listening that aren't familiar with where Allentown is or, or where the Lehigh Valley is, uh, we're we're right in the middle of New York and Philly. So we're about a an hour um, southwest of New York City, uh, about an hour northwest of uh, Philadelphia, and it's a, a region of about nine hundred thousand. People, so this is a uh, you know this is an orchestra in a city the size of uh, you know Columbus, Ohio, or um, or Milwaukee, or someplace like that. So um, we we should talk a little bit about the current season that we're in. Uh, we still have a lot of uh, a lot of concerts to go, and uh, any anything uh, in particular you'd like to uh, to highlight? Well, you know we have three very exciting concerts coming up in the spring, and you know I'm known for doing things that do involve multimedia or extra types of things along the orchestral concert line. It's something I'm excited about. It's something that I'm I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to bring concerts that are unique. I feel that you know nowadays people 
can get so much on YouTube that I have to really make the concert meaningful and impactful so that people will say, yes, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go to this concert. So we have a concert coming up of Puccini's greatest hits. And Puccini is, is one of the very famous opera composers. He wrote La Boheme, Tosca, Janiskiki, uh, Madame Butterfly. And so we'll be doing mini scenes from that with video sets behind the orchestra. And this music is it's all love music. It's all just great, luscious, beautiful melodies. And I'm very, very excited about that concert. That's going to be February 13th and 14th. A- appropriately enough. Exactly. Yep. I mean, what a wonderful <laughs> Valentine's Day gift for whoever you want to go spend the, the, you know, that night with and have a really night out with. And then in March, on March 12th and 13th, we have Stravinsky's Petrushka, which I mentioned earlier. And this is all – Petrushka is all about a festival. It's a Shrovetide Fair. It's a carnival. And there is a puppet booth there. And so we will be having dancers that will be the Petrushka puppet, the ballerina puppet, the Moore puppet. And they will be on a sort of life-size stage puppet theater behind the orchestra. And then the Shrovetide Fair, the big carnival, will actually take place in the audience with dancers. And so that's another program I'm really excited about. And, and the dancers are, are from a company that you're, you're – Yes, the Lehigh Valley Ball- Ballet Guild. Okay. And, and I've worked with them. They're phenomenal, just wonderful. And then we we conclude the season with Carmina Burana featuring our Allentown Symphony Chorus. And that's a fabulous work. We're opening that concert with a, a piece by Ellen Zvillick, who is one of the leading uh, uh, women composers of our era, a celebration overture. And then we're also doing Mozart, his uh, Symphony Number no. 35 on that program. So some really exciting things. We also do Pops concerts. So we have a tribute to Marvin Hamlish happening in May on May 14th. And then we're doing uh, Lenny Godfrey is bringing us some wonderful jazz standards on January 23rd. So I think some exciting concerts coming up. A little bit of something uh, for everybody there. So that's that's fantastic. You know, and, one sorry, other thing I'd like to me. mention is uh, we are in our second year of doing our fantasy symphony. And fantasy symphony is where if you're listening and you happen to play an instrument where you can actually come and join the members of the Allentown Symphony in sort of a playthrough, and that's on January 24th, and there is information on the Allentown Symphony website about that. And this went over really, really uh, well, well, very well received by the community last year. And, and uh, you know, think of, uh, you know, if, Fantasy baseball, or uh, what's that called when you go down and, uh, you know, kind of like fantasy baseball camp, or, or every now and then you see these rock and roll camps, you know, like in Las Vegas or something show up where you can, you know, take the stage and Roger Daltrey comes out and sings a song and, you know, for your five grand or whatever it was that week. But this well, is, this is, a, this a, lot is a lot less than five less than grand. That. I think it's $50 you, to sign see, up. So this you is read a bargain. My, you read my mind. <laughs> see, we should, we should do this more often. Um, but so what it is, is if you played an instrument back when you were younger and maybe didn't keep up with it, or you're a hobbyist that have always wanted to have, uh, the opportunity to perform in, you know, a large ensemble like this in a, in a, you know, great old concert hall that was built, beautiful hall, you know, uh, uh, 1905, I want to say, or actually it was built 1898, okay. but first as a marketplace and then remodeled into a concert hall. So they, they, there are not many of these buildings laying around, I guess is my point. Um, so you can, if you contact the symphony, 
get in this this uh, program and you know actually have the opportunity to sit alongside the pros and play a version of of well, they're so, actually doing... playing the originals. We're playing the originals, so you would go to the Allentown Symphony website, go to the Education tab, and look for Fantasy Symphony, and the music is actually up online, so you can check it out. Uh, we're doing a movement of Berlioz Symphony Fantastique. Very, there you go. <laughs> and yeah, so it's it's really a lot of fun. But that way, you can check out the music. Um, there is no audition; anyone can come play. It's just a great time. And and you'll do some coaching in in individual sections with our principals, and then we'll all get together and read through the stuff. All right. So everybody that's interested in that, start practicing now because uh, it, I'm sure it's uh, it's it's a good time. But uh, again, you can't. It's an experience you cannot recreate unless you're there doing it. And it only will exist at the time you're performing. So it's kind of a special thing. Um, so if uh, we'll have all of these email or all of these web addresses up on, on the uh, podcasts page. Um, but check out uh, Diane's page, certainly, uh, which is dianewitry.com. Uh, the Allentown symphony is allentownsymphony.org, just like it sounds. And uh, if you're, uh, if you didn't have a chance to write that down, just go to the podcasts website, which is creativeconfidential.net. And in Diane's episode page, uh, everything will be there, and you can just click through and uh, and uh, buy lots of tickets and 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 donate money. So that's great. That's uh, great. All right. So uh, Diane, thanks so much for joining us today. And um, this uh, this was a lot of fun. We should come back and do this in the spring. Or that'd be great. That'd be great. Okay. Always a pleasure. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization, for public speaking engagements, or if you have legal matters you want to discuss, contact him at tucklaw.com. That's T-U-K-Law.com. For future episodes, please subscribe to Creative Confidential on iTunes or visit us at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve Mittman social media creation. Creation. Steve Mittman, socialmedia.com.